0: what I've been a neuroscientist at that point for 24 years or something and I've been the owner and operator of female body and brain my whole life and I have never before considered women's health my life experiences puberty menstrual cycles the pill pregnancy menopause at that point was in the distant future I'd never considered my life experiences through the lens of neuroscience (laughs) I was like what have I been thinking about all these years
1: Welcome to Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I have been successfully managing my depression and anxiety for the past 15 years. If this sounds like a self-help commercial, it kind of is. Mental health can feel messy, confusing, and there is no universal prescription. But the more we openly talk about it, the more we will discover together. P.S. I am not a doctor, but I hope you will join me and my guests, including authors, doctors, celebrities, specialists, and friends to hear their journey with mental well-being and to learn tips and tools for support. So let's dive in. Today we welcome Dr. Sarah Mackay, who's a neuroscientist who translates brain research into strategies for professionals working in health, education, and coaching she received her PhD from Oxford, but after five years of research, she hung up her lab coat to set up ThinkBrain, a science communications business that bridges the gap between the lab and everyday life. Sarah is the author of the women's brain book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones and Happiness, which explores the female lifespan through the lens of neurobiology. Her second book, Baby Brain, the surprising neuroscience of how pregnancy and motherhood sculpt our brains and change our minds for the better, was published this year. Sarah lives on Sydney's northern beaches with her husband and together they are raising two boys and a cocker spaniel.
0: Welcome, Sarah. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Katie. Thanks for
1: having me. Yes, thank you for being here. I have so many questions. Good. I, don't, I have lots of answers probably. I, you know, right? Let's <laughs> like, have know. a
0: conversation.
1: The first thing that I think was, I sort of saw in a lot of different interviews you had and in your book was the, Is it the bottom up, bottom out or how you refer? I want you to explain that to everyone because I think it's so interesting. and such a great way of teaching people.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It is is super useful. So the brain is super complex. (laughs) There is a lot going on. (laughs) I've been studying, teaching within the field of neuroscience for 30 years. I don't think I know how the brain works, but I've got- You look so young for 30 years. (laughs) okay I'm nearly 50 um okay, well australia lots of sunscreen well. <laughs> <laughs> um and the zoom filter <laughs> yeah, yeah right i know <laughs> like we love zoom yeah so i always like to think if we're talking about what impacts the brain we're thinking perhaps about brain problems like we might talk about insomnia or anxiety we're talking about brain aging we're talking about how can we promote brain health? Let's put the brain in the middle of this and think about what are the various factors or data inputs coming into the brain that the brain is making meaning of before it determines how we behave next. And so we have bottom-up or biological inputs. Now, some of these we completely unaware of, That'd be things like, you know, our genetic makeup or or perhaps potential viruses or immune system responses, the food we eat, our hormone levels, our blood pH, there's, you know, billions and billions of inputs coming into our brain about our body. Some of those inputs we are aware of what we call interoception. So that might be, oh, I've got a full bladder or a sore back, or I'm pregnant and I could feel a baby kicking, I'm hungry. Um, And some of these we can come in and out of our awareness, for example, breathing, we keep breathing all day and never think about it until we choose to regulate our breathing, for example. So we've got bottom up biological inputs and the brain is constantly in conversation with our body. We've also got inputs coming in from the outside world and through our senses. So I call it outside in and the outside world doesn't kind of make its way in by some magic sort of force It comes in through what we see through what we hear and if something is close enough to us what we can smell or taste or touch and because we're humans a large part of the inputs from the outside and world are visual but visual also includes things like the rising and the setting of the sun and includes our social interactions with other people we're constantly engaging with other people in terms of emotional expressions they have on their faces and making meaning of them recognizing a friend from frenemy there's a lot of social input which comes in through what we see but also what we hear and and, and you know our smell and our and our touch and finally we've got top down so we've got bottom up outside in, and top down and we're so that we're was humans, all bottom so up right no bottom up biology and we've got outside in world of so okay. other people nature you know, scrolling through your phone, that's the outside world making its way into your brain. And there's far too much of the outside world making its way in. Or like an edge. You now have access to the entire world and one little visual input. So (laughs) life was simpler in terms of outside Mm -hmm. in. And then we've got top down. So that might be thoughts or expectations or beliefs or memories of prior experiences, the meaning we're making of, what we're feeling in our body and the context we're in. And so our brain is constantly making meaning of all of these inputs. Mm -hmm. And we can think about, and these inputs can influence each other. And, you know, I've just written a book about the neurobiology of pregnancy and motherhood. So that's that's a good example. We can think about how the brain changes. So how does the bottom up, the hormones of pregnancy shape and sculpt our brains so that we become very tuned in? to the outside-in social signals of a little baby. It's baby's cries, the baby's little cute face and the baby's smell. So we've got the bottom-up influencing the outside-in perception. We've got the outside-in so social support networks can shape our top-down mood. And we know that mental health issues, we're far more vulnerable in new motherhood if we don't have strong social support networks. And then we've got top-down can influence the bottom-up. So if you are a breastfeeding mother, Mm. after breastfeeding is established you only need to think of your baby and you'll get breast milk let down the baby doesn't need to be there so we've got top down influencing the bottom up so so all of these factors kind of interplay and we can put any issue in the middle of the, this model in the brain and it just gives us a super simple framework a way of simplifying the complexities of neuroscience because neuroscience is a as a behemoth a glorious mess and it, this just gives us kind of a little bit of a, a map to navigate our way through
1: Right. And the Women's Brain
0: is your book that came out in April, right? No, my, the Women's Brain that the book came out. Brain. In, yeah, I've got two books. The first book was the Women's Brain book, The Neuroscience yes. of Health, Hormones and Happiness. That came out in 2018. Yes. And Baby Brain, the surprising neuroscience of how pregnancy and motherhood sculpt our brains and change our minds for the better. That came out in April. So there's
1: two sisters. Okay, both <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah. I would love to know what was there an aha moment where you thought yeah. I need to put
0: this all down in one place? Yeah, it's funny because the aha moment for for both of them was almost the same moment. So in 2016, I was approached by a book publisher who said, "Do you want to write a book? A book? Come and write. A, let's write a book. Let's write a book together." And um, I was like, oh, "I don't want it." That sounds <laughs> like hard work, and I didn't have an idea. And so we met. She's very charismatic. Um, she's now my agent, Zhang Rippings, and. um, we're meeting, chatting over coffee. And then she said, what have you written for an audience that has resonated with them? And I'd yeah. written an article about brain fog and menopause. She said, why don't you write a book on menopause? I was like, I'm 42. That sounds like something mum once did with her friends. I'm not writing about menopause. And then she said, oh, what about baby brain? Is that a thing? And I immediately dismissed that because I never personally experienced it. You didn't? And
1: That's no, you I didn't even okay. know it was a
0: thing. And I just said, oh, you know, M- mother nature doesn't intend for mothers to become dumb. <laughs> but then as I, you know, kind of said that I was like, oh, you know what? I've been a neuroscientist at that point for 24 years or something. And I've been the owner and operator of female body and brain my whole life. And I have never before considered women's health, my life experiences, puberty, menstrual cycles, the pill, pregnancy, menopause at that point was in the distant future. i would never considered my life experiences through the lens of neuroscience. (laughs) I was like, what have I been thinking about all these years? I was neuro, there's a lot to think about. I really did have an aha moment. And I said, you know, what would be really interesting would be to take a kind of a womb to tomb, like take a tour, became bigger than Ben-Hur, but take a tour across the female lifespan. Look at these really significant life phases and events and see how do they shape and sculpt our brain? And in turn, how does our brain regulate and interact with these experiences and so that's where the the women's brain book came I didn't want to call it that I wanted to call it in her head oh that's cute but what they didn't want the publishers thought it might sound like a domestic noir like girl oh. on the train or something and then yeah. the second book came about because I was really deeply immersed in this world of women's brain health neuroscience which has really taken off within the last five to ten years yeah I mean there was no paper published on what happens to the brain during pregnancy until 2017. The brain during menopause was had just had its second year birth date. It was June 2020, sorry, 2021. So I had never, I was kind of deeply immersed in all of this yeah. and I could see these amazing, largely female neuroscientists yeah. working in this space, particularly around pregnancy and motherhood, finding out all these amazing positive strengths-based changes taking place during pregnancy and motherhood. But the conversation around pregnancy and motherhood and brains was one consistently of cognitive dysfunction and emotional instability. And I thought that's not what the science is showing. And so, you know, now these two books, I think fit really neatly together, you know, sort of cheering on from the sidelines, because I'm not working in the research lab. I'm cheering loudly, as loudly as I can from the sidelines for all these, these amazing women, women of steel, who have worked their way up through the research labs to the point where they can start asking questions that really matter to us, lived experience, (laughs) <laughs> is finally making its way into, into the neuroscience research space. And it's so exciting.
1: And why it's so <clears throat> disheartening to hear that there really weren't any studies done on the menopause brain till just how many years ago did you say? It's so scary. I've been reading more and more.
0: Yeah. So we, we have done some work, but the first brain imaging study looking at charting kind of structural changes across Across the menopause came out 2021. That said, they could have been working on that for a really long time. The paper that was published January 2017 on pregnancy, Mm -hmm. the idea of that sparked in 2009. So it takes a really long time to do good neuroscience well. But that is starting to change now with the advent of we've got biobanks of brain imaging data and we've now got you know machine learning and AI which can analyze bigger data sets more quickly but we've still got to gather the right information and it is depressing and frustrating and there are a lot of reasons as to why but I think for me what's exciting is to see that the questions are now being asked and the research funding is going towards answering them and I and my theory is So I'm Gen X. I think it's my generation of women who started off in the neurosciences in the 90s, have moved on up and now asking questions and are able to get the research funding and guide the research questions. The pregnancy paper came about because three women in Spain in the early 30s were having a conversation with each other. They were all in a brain imaging research lab. They were having a conversation with each other about, well, I think i might. plan on having a baby that might be my next life goal women in their 30s have those conversations all, yeah, all the time yeah everywhere in the world and then they said being neuroscientists well what would happen to our brains and they looked into the research and they found there was no there was like zero information and then they went well why don't we do a study because we work in a brain imaging lab and then they <laughs> started gathering that and that's what we see is that when we have women asking questions about themselves instead of it being oh that's a bit mumsy and irrelevant women's health you know periods gross you know we're starting to ask the questions and guide the research funds and and get the answers and I think it's this generation of women I couldn't I couldn't you know I'm standing on the shoulders of of giants
1: (laughs) no but I mean it's it's interesting in one of your books you were saying it was Interesting for me that every three cases of depression, two occur in women, and anxiety shares a similar statistic. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I think there's different opinions or even different facts you read of why that is. Mm. Why do you think that is?
0: Let's well, wear the bottom up outside and top down. Right? Yeah. Really <laughs> well, there we go. Because <laughs> it's not one thing. It's right. like you know, a wall isn't made of one brick. It's made of made of lots of different components. And we're looking at a population. So, you know, we're looking at populations. It's not like two women here and three women there. We're looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of women to see that ratio. So part of that may be, you know, part of the contribution to that is biological. Mm -hmm. So, you know, women go through times of hormonal flux, which makes some women more vulnerable to developing anxiety and depression. Girls going through when their menstrual cycles are becoming established is quite a vulnerable time. Their bodies are changing. They're realizing other people are looking at them in a different way. Early motherhood is another vulnerable time because of hormones, but also because of, you know, everything is changing. That phase of matrescence really is about physical and social and psychological and, and neurological change. So, you know, we've got biological differences there, which are adding to the risk factors. We've got the outside in. We see... Depending on where you live in the world and your in your experiences, we see gender inequality in countries where there is enormous gender inequality impacting rates of anxiety and depression. We can see life experiences, childhood experiences, can can contribute to that. That's not to say boys and men don't have, you know, difficult life experiences or early right. childhood trauma, etc. But it's just another one of these pieces in here. And then we've got these, this that we can think about top down, and we know that girls and women have a propensity. More so than boys and men, but we're not, we're talking, there's a lot of overlap here towards, and I hate the word neuroticism, but it is a personality <laughs> trait, which is, makes it sound like you're just neurotic, but yeah. it's really just more about kind of self-reflection and the kind of internalizing of of ideas and and rumination versus being more of a pragmatic thinker you know, kind of a problem solving way out of an emotion. Now that's very generalized, Mm -hmm. but all of these things are very generalized, but what they do is they add up. And Mm -hmm. then finally we've got for a long time, and this is starting to change in different parts of the world. There's a great deal of stigma around mental health. So Mm -hmm. girls and women may be more comfortable reaching out for help and asking for support. We go to the GP or the, you know, your, your, your family doctor, We see differences in brain structure in countries with significant gender inequality, particularly in terms of how that impacts women's brains. And, you know, women who experience pregnancy, females experience pregnancy, males don't. We see changes here. That aside, are there differences between male and female brains? It's always a question that's a difficult one to ask because it's it, almost as if we're coming up that question saying if we had 100 people in a room could we lift up their skulls and look inside and see pink brains and blue I brains <laughs> and divide them in half in the same way we could as if we pulled their pants down and looked at their genitals we we can't do that brains are like bodies and that we share many 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 characteristics male and female we've got you know five fingers on each hand and arms and legs and eyeballs with a retina that an optic nerve going through to our visual cortex and hearts and lungs but when we zoom in. We do see some slight differences. And certainly if we look at post-pubital males and females, we see differences emerging in secondary sexual characteristics. Men are bigger. A bigger brain is required to drive a bigger body around. But on average, men are bigger. My sister's six foot tall. <laughs> She's bigger than many men. We've got, you know, men are kind of a bit hairier. And then, of course, we've got the obvious, you know, genitals, reproductive organ differences. And we have different regions of the brain you know, females have got a region of the brain involved with controlling ovulation. Males do not have that part.
1: And what do you see
0: if someone is
1: born, you know, and predisposed to depression? What, what do you see in their brain? If anything? Yeah, that's,
0: that's interesting. Cause I mean, I suppose one part of the assumption of that question is, is you're born with this genetic predisposition to depression and there are some families in which there is a propensity mm-hmm. for depression But depression comes in many, many, many shades of blue (laughs) from, you know, situational depression reacting to, you know, you've lost a loved one and it's incredibly stressful and traumatic and, you know, you're going to become, your mood is going to become impacted and maybe you'll come out of it. The, you know, and you might get depression because you're you're feeling blue because you're not nourishing your body and you're not getting enough sleep or an exercise basis like that. Or you might have deep, dark, clinically resistant depression that perhaps could only be relieved temporarily by ECT, which is, you know, not like it used to be in the old days, but, mm-hmm. but now a reasonably well-established treatment for people with clinically resistant depression. So you've got, you know, a whole host of kinds of depression that, that manifests in, in, in different ways this is kind of almost should be an umbrella term to to describe this and again as I said there's going to be various factors which are contributing to that and it's hard to always tease out the nature yeah. from the nurture because they're very entwined. We know, and we're getting more and more information now about you know the fundamental importance of early childhood and infancy and how important and how damaging adverse childhood experiences yeah. can be in terms of as, as a strong risk factor for the development of mental health problems, particularly depression later in life. Again, it's yeah. not it's not one little thing. <laughs> it's,
1: I was it's I just common. I remember I've been in therapy for so long. I was always it was always described to me as like my neurotransmitters weren't communicating.
0: Mm. that's and one theory of depression so that's what we might call yeah. the serotonin theory of depression and it yes. kind of came about because we the drugs we would now call antidepressants that target like the neurotransmitter serotonin so one of those kinds of drugs is the serotonin reuptake inhibitor and essentially mm-hmm. what it does is it blocks there's like a little vacuum in a, in a neuron when it releases serotonin, it gets sucked back in. The, the neuron recycles the serotonin. It's very efficient. Yeah. Um, and the, the longer you've got serotonin in the synapse, the gap between two neurons, the better the transmission. And if we block that serotonin in some people, some of the time, not everyone all of the time, but definitely in some people, some of the time it lifted mood. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that, and we know that they work in some people very well, That doesn't mean everyone, but they do work very well in some people. Does that mean that depression is caused by not enough serotonin? Well, not necessarily. And one of the kind of analogies that's often given is if you have a headache and you take paracetamol, it goes away. Does that mean you were deficient in paracetamol to cause your headache? No, but I think we have to be kind of careful about how we discuss this because it can become very easy to go, well, the serotonin theory of depression is rubbish therefore no one should take SSRIs and anyone who prescribes them is yeah a drug dealer <laughs> that's not that's not the case because we're all we're all different and different people that are going to respond in, in in different ways yes the placebo effect is a large part of that if you expect to feel better you will start to feel a bit better but on top of that we do see an an, an increase in of mood in some people when we enhance serotonin. Does that mean that's the cause? No, right. that just means that in some people that helps. Yes. So I think we need to be a bit more sophisticated in our understanding of that. Some people, it could be a purely biochemical phenomenon. And this is really the issue that we see in people with clinically resistant depression versus situational depression, where we could be adding in a whole other host of you know cognitive behavioral therapies and, you yeah. know, diet and exercise and social connection and support and all of the other things around will also help.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely not a like one size fits all for Mm.
0: sure.
1: I just was always interested because I was always given that example. And for me, SSRIs have worked really well. Like I can't not Mm. be on Zoloft, but I also, you know, do talk therapy and have to make sure to be eating
0: well, sleeping Mm. well, all that stuff. Yeah. And you're probably um, familiar then, they work for you, but you probably yeah. also heard the stories about people going to do the worst thing ever to be Well, invented.
1: you know what, and also what, what can happen is sometimes they can stop working, you know, and one that stops working yeah. can then work again. Like I had yeah. to go off and then come back, you know, it's not yeah, a yeah. like take the pill and everything's great for the rest of time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And I think that's why the brain is, you know, also, it's like its own
0: universe, right? So it is, it is. it's crazy. <laughs> it's multiple universes.
1: <laughs> um i don't i feel like i when one of your books was saying it's like one
0: billion neurons or one trillion neurons i can't 86 remember. billion that's the current estimate that's but so i mean pretty. we don't even know what to make of that this is like a ridiculous number we we kind of understand how one neuron we kind of well we're kind of getting to understanding maybe how one neuron works and how right. it connects with one other so there's right. two of the 86 billion but how does that form a neural network that is conscious
1: Right. I don't she, even like it just Zoom works. and
0: have a conversation. We, we don't, I mean, it's a mystery. Yeah, the, the, the brain is a mystery. And that's why neuroscience is so cool because even 30 years on, every single day I will read another paper. Oh, get out. That is cool. <laughs> I
1: feel like it's like this. You can't look at it, right? It's not like you can just look at someone's brain working. Unless it's possible. no, we're getting
0: better at doing that. You know, you technology are. is advancing so that we're able to record and visualize brains and look at brain structure and look at how brains are uh, uh, interacting. And more importantly, I think we're getting to the point now where we can study brains in kind of isolated captivity. You know, you get put in an MRI scanner saying right. you have to lie there and not move. <laughs> and then A social interaction will be looking at a video with your eyes. That's not real life. (laughs) And so we're now getting to the point where we can kind of record from two brains at once, interacting with each other and and understand, you know, when there's trust and rapport between two people, we start to see brainwaves synchronize. We see heart rate synchronize, breathing synchronize. Our physiology kind of dances with someone else who we know well and and are interacting with. Um, So, you know, we're, we're starting to move on from kind of one brain (laughs) to looking at two you know but that that's we're so primitive when it comes to that kind of, of of measurement.
1: Is that like two people in an MRI that they're no,
0: at the moment, because they can't move and interact, at the moment it's using yeah. EEG. So it's using like a okay. cap on your head and it's recording brain waves. So it doesn't okay. tell you really where something in the brain happens, but it kind of tells you when and it's very precise in terms of brain waves and what and what happens is we can record these dual brain waves and when there's synchrony, when there's rapport, when it's like you get me. It's much harder to do via a screen. But if you, especially if you're in real life, we see the brainwaves sort of synchronize and we can see what causes them to desynchronize. And it's not ESP. It's not some magic thing that causes them. It's, you know, what we're seeing in each other. It's eye eye contact. It's making and breaking gaze. Right. Um, it's like shared it's like attention. Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's shared movement. It's smell. Olfac- you know, we are much more likely to synchronize with someone when we're in the same room because we can actually, uh, you know, the chemo signals go between each other. If there's two children listening to a teacher read a story or three brains would synchronize, so it was about shared attention as well. So, this, is, this kind of new field is giving us some really cool insights into how That's people cool. interact.
1: Well, it's become, I feel like, more and more trendy, which was never talked about before. We kind of touched on this earlier in the interview, menopause and perimenopause. Mm. And now it's almost the like hot topic. <laughs> yeah, the hot topic, pun intended. What is the biggest misconception about perimenopause and menopause?
0: I don't think people realize that menopause is a neurological trans—you know transformation in our brains. 30 years ago, women all around the world were taking menopause hormone therapy all the time, quite happily. But then some studies were done, some clinical trials were done, looking to see what are the health outcomes long-term. And there did appear to be increased rates of everything from breast cancer to heart attacks to strokes, et cetera. And so the world kind of lost, freaked out, rightly so, and about 50% of women stopped taking menopause globally. Mm -hmm. 20 years later, we're finally starting to kind of see this shift. Mm -hmm. And we understand that the problem was lots of the women included in these trials were started on hormone therapy in their 60s and 70s. So 20, years after menopause yeah yeah and once a body has weaned off estrogen as it does and then it's introduced back in a time later that's where we saw the increased risk that's largely where the increased risk came from what we understand now is the woman who has started during perimenopause or within the first kind of five years of menopause when they are experiencing symptoms yeah you haven't kind of weaned off your estrogen yet so putting it back in and the right formulation based on, you know, your understanding yeah. of breast cancer risk in your family, based on, you know, an individualized decision made carefully, then those women are not at any increased risk of, of most of these health outcomes that that we saw. Yeah. So I'm starting because I'm 48, you know, like I hear about menopause all the time from everyone right. everywhere. It really is having its moment. And again, it's my generation of women. We've got our big girl pants on. We've had them on for 30 years. You know, we're not are not know, taking we're a not, lying down. We're not taking a lying down. Yeah. We've had our careers. We've had our kids. We're raising our teenagers. You know, we're we're, we're not going to just wallow around in victimhood when it comes to menopause. I say, if you get to the age of 48 and you haven't got a good family doctor who you can have a conversation with, now might be about time. So I grew, I grew up in New Zealand and there's this beautiful word that they use there for menopause, like instead of it being a pause or something, it's ruahine <laughs> tanga. And okay. that means that translates to it's like kind of two woman action. It's kind of translates to second womanhood, which I think oh, is really nice. So it's like a really lovely strength based language approach. Did you to, say second
1: woman womanhood? Yes, yeah, second. second womanhood. Wow. That's what. It,
0: so instead of a kind of a focus on deficit and dysfunction, right. which we're primed to think about whenever it comes to ourselves, brains and reproductive health you know it's cognitive decline and emotional dysfunction no way well you know this is about it's the the next phase of life as a woman but to talk about we'll talk about the thermoregulation because i think that's this is really interesting this is and i talk about this because this is the well-established understanding that we have Mm -hmm. there are lots of things we don't yet know or don't really fully understand but what we know is in our brain in our hypothalamus deep in our brain we have a thermostat which regulates body temperature and when a body core, body temperature gets too hot, that triggers a response behaviorally. So you'll take your clothes off, or you'll go, right. get cold water, or you'll look for shade and you'll sweat and you'll go really red and you'll start sweating to cool you down. Similarly, if you get too cold, put clothes on and you'll shiver. Um, and if it's at nighttime, you know, you might throw the bed clothes off or you might sweat. We know that that thermostat is. Is regulated by estrogen, and when estrogen starts to fluctuate during perimenopause, it goes up and down and up and down. Then that thermostat gets disrupted, and what we sometimes see is that the top level goes down. So we only need the tiniest increase in core body temperature to trigger the "Oh my god, it is hot in here!" Quickly, quickly, do something to cool down. So we get the surge of heat, which is our body trying to throw heat off, the sweating, and with that especially if we're asleep, because your brain is trying to wake you up to behaviorally respond, we get a big surge of adrenaline. Yeah. So that's kind of accompanying and we feel adrenaline as a panic or as a, gosh, what's happening kind of thing. And if we're yes. asleep, we might go, oh, God, you wake up. The same thing happens in people with sleep apnea mm. when they kind of get obstructed with their breathing, their brain will send a, a, an adrenaline kind of surge through their body to wake them up. So they start breathing again. And if you've got a surge of adrenaline waking you up one night once, it's hard to get back to sleep multiple times a night, et cetera, et cetera. You can start to see how everything else sort of starts to, the dominoes start to fall over. Now we know estrogen is responsible because if we use menopause hormone therapy, that for most women helps deal with the thermoregulation issues.
1: And you were saying in that interview too, that it can happen when you're not even being woken
0: up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the thing, it. your sleep architecture can be disrupted even though you're not waking up and aware of it. Okay. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever drunk too much. far <laughs> <about laughs> too many times in my life. What <laughs> are you talking about? Try yeah. and be a bit more more together now that I'm getting older because it's just disastrous <laughs> otherwise. But even like now, one glass of wine right. late in the evening will disrupt my sleep architecture. So I might not wake up all night, Right. but I will wake up the next morning feeling like i had a really disrupted night's sleep that's because the alcohol disrupted the sleep architecture I was still unconscious for eight hours but my sleep architecture wasn't it wasn't natural sleep and the same as what we see when we have disrupted thermoregulation it might not be enough to wake you up but it might be enough to disrupt sleep architecture right
1: it's just so interesting too where I had read that somewhere before but I never even realized that your brain controlled your body temperature, which I don't think a lot of people they think. Oh no, your body's telling you. Yeah. You know, it's not. <laughs> yeah, your yeah, body. yeah. The,
0: yeah, your brain controls everything because it's the information has is going in from your your body to your brain, and then your brain is telling your body how to warm up or cool down. Right. The same with most bod- bodily signals. You know, your, your bladder's full; it sends a signal to your brain, and it comes into your conscious awareness to go and empty your bladder. And the same with your hormones. You know, your ovaries and your hypothalamus are in constant conversation. And that's why we see a lot of the issues that happen during perimenopause are caused by rollercoastering hormones, because every month you ovulate, you release, if you're not on the pill, you ovulate, you release estrogen. The estrogen makes its way up to the brain. The brain goes, oh, it's ovulation time and sends a signal back down to the ovaries. You know, you've kind of got the monthly cycle. We all know what goes on.
1: No, it's true. You're kind of more horny around that.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. When yeah. the eggs start to get old, which is what happens, you know, yep. in your late 40s, they, they it's driven by the eggs getting old. You might get one month where there's a few released, you know, they're kind of bit out of whack. <laughs> and there'll be an enormous surge of estrogen and the brain's going, whoa, and shouts back down to the ovaries saying, Not that much. The ovaries go, oh, my God. and the next month there's hardly any. And then the brain's going, a little bit more and the ovaries go okay and then the brain's go no not that much so that's why you get instead so it's of this like nice, a
1: miscommunication There's like this
0: miscommunication and you get these big roller coastering levels of estrogen and that what's causes and many midlife women have very very heavy bleeding before their periods stop okay we start to see a lot of dysregulation happening because of these ridiculously up and down levels of, of of estrogen. Now, you can either put the estrogen back in and flatline it all, as you would do with your menopause hormone therapy, or you can just hold tight. Maybe you're fine. Lots of women don't have any symptoms and sail through. And then when everything flatlines... Then you kind of reach your new normal. There's some really cool cognitive behavioral therapies around to help women cope with hot flashes. And Some of the other symptoms, if they can't, so they've, they've got estrogen positive breast cancer, they can't take hormone therapy. What are they going to do? There's some really cool cognitive behavioral therapies, which are kind of designed to help women not catastrophize. You're in a boardroom and you get the hot sweat. Because if you catastrophize it and Freak out about much. it. Yeah. <laughs> or find it really distressing. It's going to make it worse. So, you know, there's again, there's lots of different approaches. And, you know, we know women who are more generally have, have overall well health and well-being. You know, you've got your diet, your exercise, your sleep sorted. You've got good ways to manage the inevitable stresses that we all face in life. Um, you've got your social support networks, you know, you've got your 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 tribe of women that you're going through this yeah. with. You've got all your psychological tools. Those women will traverse perhaps in an easier way the woman who have none of those things sorted and then thankfully we now have this understanding of hey if you choose to take menopause hormone therapy it's probably not going to have these negative health consequences that we thought 20 years ago
1: yes that it isn't going to give you cancer automatically which is Mm, no really
0: very much of a or dementia (laughs)
1: yes oh is was that another thing they said it was That was another well
0: that was another issue was does it cause dementia we know we've got studies of you know women who've been on the pill for 10 20 30 years and actually we see that it appears to provide some resilience to brain aging and protection against alzheimer's disease if you have four up to four pregnancies you see that protective consequence as well so having estrogen in your system is a good healthy thing so likely it may be protective but I think it really depends on the overall health of women at the time they're taking that, the formulations they take, why, et cetera, et cetera. It's, the, the story isn't clear, but we know it's not causing Alzheimer's. Let's just say that. So what
1: is next for you? I mean, it, it's like you've already done so much. You just had your second
0: book come out. Is there anything you're working on right now? So I teach, I have, I have quite a few different professional development training programs that um, I run during the year. So I've got my standard neuroscience academy and also the two-week version of that, which is a, a basic program in applied neuroscience and brain health. We use bottom-up, outside and top-down. First lesson, we I teach everyone how to draw that. And then that really... I'm not talking at people like let's do some stuff <laughs> together. And so that teaches people how to use that as a tool and then they go off and use that with their clients. So that's great right. fun. I've got a women's brain health course that runs a couple of times a year and then a, a kind of a 201 version specifically for coaches. Cause I would say about 70 to 80% of my students are, coaches or use coaching in some aspect of their career I've got the twin sisters back here you know yeah, is there it. potential for a triplet is there a potential for a third you know I would really like I think we're midlife not just menopause but midlife broadly is a really understudied aspect of human development we know so much about infancy childhood and adolescence we're learning a bit more about matricence and old age I don't know why I want to write a book about something that we don't have any research on. But I think it's really cool to think about how does the first half of your life shape your second? And what do you do when you're kind of sitting at the, you know, halfway mark? So I don't know. I mean, books are, books are a, a big, big project. Um, you know, mostly I just like going to the beach, walking the dog, <laughs> cooking yummy food. I don't have any big goals. <laughs> I just okay. kind of... Take things as they come. I'm doing, I tell you what, what's so lovely now we're finally post COVID to get back to doing public speaking and face-to-face interactions because there's only so many Zoom conversations you can have. I get it. Because there's no context. Zoom has no context. You close your computer and then you never remember having that conversation, whereas when you go to a venue and you're interacting with people and you're in a space, you have a really clear memory of that. And Zoom almost robs us of our memories. I have had so many amazing conversations with people, but I don't remember them
1: because
0: there's nothing contextual about them and often we're talking about a similar topic.
1: We always end with our like rapid five questions. You sort of answered the first one. Um, when you mentioned the
0: beach, but what do you do for a mental break? Definitely, definitely, like I can see the ocean from my office, I'm very, very fortunate. So, yeah, the ocean, salt water yeah. that's like we, it's magnificent with uh, El Nino winters in Sydney are magnificent, and the water's clear, and there's so much sea life. So, that's yeah. And I know that you mentioned in
1: one of your bios that you're an ocean swimmer, which is very different. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> when amazing. Is- Yeah. When is the last time you cried? I was in a plane flying into New Zealand. So I grew up in New Zealand and we went back, actually we just flew back from New Zealand back to Australia a couple of days ago. So I went over to see my mum and my sister and going into land in New Zealand made me cry because we couldn't, because the New Zealand borders were closed for so long, even to citizens, which was just one of the more difficult things I've had to manage psychologically. And it, just it makes me emotional thinking about it now. So, so being able to fly back to see yeah. my mum without yeah. being told I wasn't no longer allowed was made me cry. Wow. That's awesome.
1: Mm. What are you currently reading besides your own books? Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I read a lot of nonfiction and a lot of fiction. So I'm reading a book at the moment. I actually have my Kindle here. Let me tell you the name of the book I'm reading. It's really cool. I love just like. I quite like a police procedural to relax my mind. I'm reading a book called I Have Some Questions for You by the author's Rebecca McKay, McKay, McKay. And it's a really cool kind of, I love a campus novel as well because, you know, I liked university life. It's kind of about a podcaster and a a boarding school campus and a murder. I love the murder story. Yeah, yeah, I love a good, (laughs) I love a love a bit of, true crime or yeah. whatever.
1: What is the best and
0: worst advice you've been given throughout your career? Oh, I don't really want to say the worst advice okay, you it don't have to say really the it sounds really anti-feminist, but it was go through the old girls network, but it actually didn't really serve me very well because I've never really, you know, like identity stuff isn't my jam and I should just have chosen based on research topics, things I was interested in versus thinking, well, they'll be a good boss. Mm-hmm. Because of who they are. That was advice that I took, but it just backfired for me. So perhaps it wasn't bad advice. And that that's something I still work to unpack, I suppose. That was leaving, you know, being an academia and then choosing to leave academia. The best advice I've ever been given. No one ever really. Gets like nothing. Yeah. I don't know, I guess I am perhaps have a louder voice inside my own head, guiding me than listening to what other people have told me. I've um. never suffered from imposter syndrome. You know, I was a little working class girl from Darlington Christchurch who went to Oxford. Wow. And I was like, cool, this is an awesome place to be. And there's all these great people to meet and people to learn from. And I just wallowed in that experience. I've never felt I didn't belong or deserve. And so I've just always really trusted myself to guide me. I've never had to look for external guidance or or validation. That's awesome.
1: What Instagram account or Twitter, or I don't know if you're on threads,
0: you know. Oh God, I don't know. know It's like now we're on,
1: is there something that you find uplifting? You know, I find like social media can be very.
0: Do you know what I love? Because I do quite a bit of watercolor painting. Well, I go to watercolor painting class every Tuesday. I've always loved painting. watercolor, And watercolor is quite challenging kind of technique oh, yeah. to learn but I'm loving that but I I I follow loads of watercolor artists particularly botanical watercolor artists mm. on Instagram and their reels and I just find that so soothing and creative and just I just find it very calming to watch and
1: where can our listeners find you
0: so what my we website's those? probably yeah. the best portal into the okay. world um, so Dr. Sarah Mackay, M-C-K-A-Y.com. There'll be links through to social media and links through to my courses and links through okay. to my books. If yeah. you're in the US, it, the book, the most recent one's only published. We've just got Australian rights at the moment, but you can buy it as like an ebook on Kindle globally. It's on Amazon yes, globally and, aud- and Audible as well. Although I'm yeah. not reading the I'm not reading the audio. Have you seen the new episodes of Sex in the City and Just Like That? I was watching the episode last night and Carrie resigned from doing the voice um, for her book and they got a voice actress in instead and the exact same thing happened to me except I didn't resign I was fired. <laughs> what you mean what you just hated doing it? No I was just really rubbish and so they decided to get a professional voice actress in instead of me so were like use your voice just be yourself just read it out as if you are reading it, and then I kept trying. They kept going. You just we're just just not working. No, um, that's not an and easy. And so they thing said, we think we're going to get a professional in to be you, a better version of you than you are. That is so funny. And so, funny. so I did. Like I cried once. And then about 10 minutes later, I went, this is actually really quite funny. Anyway, so you can listen to someone else read my book on Audible. (laughs) That is so
1: funny. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Thank you to Dr. Sarah Mackay for joining me. We are so thrilled to have you and tune in next time thank you for tuning in to ben better how about you to learn more please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our instagram bbhbu slide into our dms with your questions and or comments also be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription this pharmacy is open 24 7.